This episode of Heavy Cardboard is brought to you by BoardGameTables.com. Without question, Chad and his folks go the extra mile to ensure that not only are you getting an amazing quality board game table, but that the entire process is as smooth as a warm knife through butter. Mm-hmm. So if you're interested, considering, or in the market for a new centerpiece for your game room, head on over to BoardGameTables.com and customize your dream table. Oh, and mention Heavy Cardboard when you do. Heavy Cardboard, Episode 73, An Infamous Interview. Coming to you from inside the literary mind of a would-be opium trafficker, welcome to Heavy Cardboard, where we talk medium and heavy strategy board games, war games, 18xx, and occasionally sit down to chat with some fascinating board game designers. We're your hosts, I'm Edward. And I'm Amanda. You know, I came to the realization earlier today that I don't think we we thank our listeners enough for, you know, listening. So thank you, all y'all that have been around, you know, this whole time. And for those that are newer, obviously, welcome to you uh, as well. Absolutely. And for all the new listeners, welcome and, and hope you enjoy the show. I think it's safe to say that we we hope that we make y'all's commute or chores around the house or workouts or whatever it is you, that y'all do while listening to us a little bit easier, a little bit better. So seriously, truly, thanks y'all for yeah, listening. Thank you so much. Today's been a day of realizations because I had another one today uh-huh. that either after HeavyCon or after WBC, th- I may not have a job. After that, <laughs> I, I I really think that I'm going to be unemployed after one of those two conventions, which it's kind of scary, but at the same time, a lot freeing mm-hmm. at the same time. But. I mean, let's face it. I'm in a job I hate. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing anything close to what it is I'm supposed to be doing in my job. Right. And there's no hope for improvement the rest of this calendar year. So I don't know that it would be the worst thing in a world, but at the same time, it's still the the unknown. It's still scary. It is. And in case you all don't know, the reason, I mean, it's just, it's from paid time or unpaid time off. Even though we have nothing going on at my job. Right. And I haven't done my job in over four months. I've been a warehouse worker, basically. Mm You would think taking unpaid time off you would, would be a, a, a good thing. But the way they see it is, hey, we're paying for your insurance and all that. You should be here working. Yeah, but if you're not doing anything. Well, we're we're kidding parts, but that's, yeah, not, that's not what we're right. supposed to be doing. No, you're being paid a lot of money to do, you know, something that's not worth that much money. Fair point. So you would think they would welcome me. No, no, really. Take as much time as you need. Scurry. Go. (laughs) But I don't think it's going to play out that way. So yeah, we'll see how that goes. (laughs) So we're in the studio again, obviously. It's in really good shape now that we have the desktop built Mm -hmm. and everything ready for the live stream tonight. I'm looking forward to that. Me too. A little nervous about it because it's like the unveiling of a new edition of a game. We've never never done done that before. No. So that yeah. that's pretty exciting, which kind of is a 
is the a stepping lead up, stone, yeah, yeah, a lead up. Now, not to sell Three Kingdoms Redux no. short by any means. I mean, it's one of our favorite games and arguably our all-time favorite three-player yeah, game. Yeah, absolutely. But we also have a couple more coming up later on this week mm-hmm. that are a big deal as well, which are the two brass unveilings right. as well. Right. So looking forward to all three of these. I'm comfortable in this room, in the studio now. That's good. We have a lot of room to walk around the table for yes. everybody. Yeah, it should be should be a lot of fun. So yeah. if y'all, uh, obviously, by the time y'all hear this, TKR will have already been done. Right. And possibly the first brass, uh, Lancashire. Say it really fast. I've been told that's how you pronounce it. Yep. Just say it really fast. Lancashire. Yeah, right, right. And take out half the vowels, half the... Lancashire. Right. There you go. Birmingham. Perfect. Done it. <laughs> Heavycon prep is a hair overwhelming. Yeah, a little bit. It, it definitely... And it's it slowly ramps up as Heavycon builds. Yeah. You know, as far as uh, how many people are attending this year, we're, we have almost 100 mm-hmm. coming. Really excited about it, but... I mean, I'll be honest, we're on schedule for everything. Like, we're not like, oh, no, we have to rush to do this. Right. But still, it's still a lot that has to get done. And yeah, yeah, we're on schedule, but still. It, that and it's only a few weeks away. So yeah. as it gets closer, I get more and more nervous. Like, oh, we haven't done this or that. Right. Like, wait, no, it's on the schedule. Relax. Yeah. <laughs> Chill out. Source has a Kickstarter going. And they're asking for input from folks who have experience with the second edition of Indonesia who would like how do we say, want to enhance their copies mm-hmm. and trick them out with some of the Meeple source uh, resources, et cetera, et cetera. So if that's something that interests you, go holler at them. They, they are asking for input and we told them we would mention it to them. Or, well, not really to them because they know it's more to y'all. We told them we would mention it to y'all. Yeah, there you go. Go Yay! with that. So live streams, we, we talked about obviously TKR tonight, or mm-hmm. as y'all are hearing this last night, Right. Uh, Brass on Thursday, uh, Lancashire on Thursday, Brass on Sunday, <laughs> and then next week, it looks like some mix of Terraforming Mars, the upcoming Martin Wallace game, MOA, a yet-to-be-determined Age of Steam map Mm -hmm. because people are like, yeah, you should play more of those. So you know what we're going to do? Yeah, we're going to play more of those. (laughs) And 2016 Golden Elephant Award finalist, (gasps) Tramways. Yes, we have two videos of Tramways already done, but you know what we don't have? A good quality one. Or at least as good as what these everything yes. else is in the new studio so we're right. gonna we're gonna do that justice and also play through that reteach it etc mm-hmm. i'm sure folks are like wait where's pax wren and millennium blades in 1822 and the colonists they're all coming in the next couple of weeks we promise we yes. haven't forgot about them nope, promise not at all. all of the ways to contact us are on our website heavycardboard.com and we rely on the generous support from our patrons over on patreon.com if you'd like to join the community, check us out, patreon.com forward slash heavy cardboard. I know that we've mentioned in the last few episodes about Game Surplus's new site, gamesurplus.com. Big shock there, I understand. <laughs> Wanted to mention it again, though. Solid prices, free shipping at 90 bucks, and truly, honest to goodness, the very best customer service in the hobby. I mean... They have Pax Renaissance in stock for 30 bucks. Trick of the Rails for 20 bucks. They have a Distant Plane, 1846, and just a ton of other games. 
So go check them out over at gamesurplus.com. Mention Heavy Cardboard when you do. And something else to keep in mind. Convention season's just around the corner. I mean, here we are talking about HeavyCon and getting ready for that. Get ready for all the amazing imports that they're going to be bringing in quick, fast, and in a hurry after all these conventions. So keep an eye out, gamesurplus.com. Okay, so originally, this episode was going to be a review of an infamous traffic. Right. With just a little bit of an interview with Cole Worley, the designer and artist behind the game. Right. I asked Cole, who's a buddy of ours. Right. Hey, would you be interested in sitting down for a quick little, you know, 20, 30 minute interview or so to pair it up with our review of an infamous traffic? Mm -hmm. He's like, yeah, that'd be cool. So we set it up for Monday. Everything's cool. Good. Good to go. He borrowed some equipment from his uh, audio department. I think he teaches at UT. I'm not sure. Um, I know he teaches in Austin, so I'm assuming it's UT. And so he he borrowed some recording equipment. Right. He's like, hey, I'll record my side. I was like, awesome, good deal, cool. An hour and a half later, right. <laughs> we, we, we finished up, and I realized that, you know, I really think that that should air by itself. Mm-hmm. And I agreed after I listened to it. Absolutely, it should air by itself. So that's kind of what it is, what we're going to do. So hope you all enjoy it as much as I did sitting down and chatting with Cole. And as much as I did editing it, it's amazing. So enjoy the conversation, y'all. All right, I'm pleased to be joined by Cole Worley, designer of the 2016 Golden Elephant Award nominated game in Infamous Traffic, published by Hollenspiele, as well as Pax Premier, published by Sierra Madre Games, and the upcoming John Company, also published by Sierra Madre Games. So thanks for taking the time today, Cole. I appreciate it. No problem, Edward. It's my pleasure. All right. So first off, a little background on like how you and I know each other. We we started out on, uh, on Board Game Geek being a... Uh, members of the same Geek Chat League, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, the GCL Gelato, I think I got asked to join it by Marco, uh, who does the the video game, uh, the war game reviews. Um, and I, I had known him from Bloomington, and I can't, it must have been 2011 or something. But that, I mean, I think that was the, fir- that was the beginning of my uh, a more serious entry to the hobby. There was just something about having to account for my plays every week. That just got me thinking about games. I don't know. I, I think it, it might have played an out an outsized role. <laughs> That's really really interesting. Now uh, Roger, uh, who also uh, who's the leader of the Geek Chat League, the Gelato, he invited me, and this is far before Heavy Cardboard ever became a thing. That that it was just I was just random guy <laughs> who hey can I can I be part of the Cool Kid Club, and uh, yeah that that was a few years ago, and then you and I ran into each other. Uh, during meetups at uh, BGG Con, and 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 here we are now. I have a podcast and YouTube channel, and you're a big fancy, big time <laughs> designer now. Look at you go! Yeah, look at us. It's a uh, great things are started there. Yeah, pretty crazy. So first off, tell folks a bit about your background and how you basically grew up kind of in the hobby though really yeah i think a lot of people in this hobby get started in their 20s and 30s and maybe i mean even older and i uh, games were just just part of life growing up i mean i i grew up in a family where play was important the par- my parents played with us um constantly as we were growing up and it was you know it was hockey when it was sunny outside and then we'd come inside and we'd play Risk and chess and Euchre and just all kinds of games. Um, and 
there, uh, there were a couple things. When I was in middle school, I had an uncle who, who's an engineer up in Wisconsin. And when he was a kid, he loved Avalon Hill games. Uh, but was very much from a generation of people who put away their childish things at a certain point. Uh, and they were in a box. And there was one, one day he came, came down. He was visiting us while he was traveling through the Midwest. And he just sort of dropped off a box of old war games. So here I was. Must be nice. Yeah, here I was in sixth grade with a copy of Third Reich and Squad Leader. Uh, what else? <laughs> Chancellorsville, Tactics Two, uh, and you know, I um, I think I was going through a little bit of a stint. I was playing some miniatures games, but when you're a kid, miniatures games are hard because they are. You, you want them all the more, but you just cannot afford that hobby. So the idea that oh, I could, seriously, I could break out a game that's of Tactics a dark, Two, deep hole. Oh, and you just you know I I. I feel like I must have been pushing it on my friends because I must have gotten a dozen people in pyramid scheme fashion to buy into Warhammer. Um, but if, <laughs> if you got if you got behind, I mean, we would play these funny little five hundred point engagements just because they were so cheap that everybody could participate. Uh, but when I got those war games, we could kind of divide up our tactics two counters as if they were, uh, you know, as if, as if they were armies in Warhammer and build our little armies and kind of you know play against each other. And, you know, it was around that same time that uh, I got Catan. And so my middle school years uh, were really marked by uh, making up rules to Avalon Hill games and playing Battle Cry and Catan. Those are kind of the the, that's what I was doing on rainy days in seventh grade. I'll be honest. I mean, at least for for me, I stopped playing board games, I'd say probably after grade school and then forgot that the hobby even exists. Like I didn't know there was a hobby that mm-hmm. existed. And so, yeah, that's that's amazing to hear. And that's awesome that your parents promoted that type of environment. Well, and, and a lot of it was happenstance, too. I had a friend, I don't think I've ever told this to anybody, but I had a friend named Tony Hollibird whose grandfather would send him games on his birthday. Uh, and they were games like Puerto Rico. Like right when Puerto Rico came out. So I, 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 I don't know that the year Puerto Rico came out. I, I assume it was 2000, 2001 maybe, because I would have been in eighth grade or high school. And he was like, hey, I got this game from my, my grandfather. It's weird. I don't know what to do with it. I mean, you have to understand when I, when I, I mean, I was, I was an immature kid like everybody else. And so I remember uh, when, I, when I learned, I got a copy of Diplomacy to Garage Sale and I hated it because there could only be one army in every province. And that felt like so silly. Like, of course you can have two armies in a pro. It's a huge amount of territory. And so we did that and broke the game. I mean, it just doesn't work. Um, and I, I Who'd remember. Who thought that, you know, all their, obviously eighth grade Cole knew better, right? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, of course. Better than Kalheimer or whatever his, his name is. And it, you know, it's funny because I remember disliking that game, putting it on a shelf. And it wasn't until, I don't know, three or four years later that I took it out and realized just how stunningly brilliant it is. Um, but I, I, I think that there, there is when you tinker and are always like making up your own rules and you're playing D and D there's a tendency, uh, to want like a kind of realism and it's not really a realism. It's just the desire for a game to be closer to like your own imaginative play as a kid. And that that's what realism is. Like I want to have eight armies in Berlin or whatever. Um, and so, so there, there's a kind of arrogance to that. And I think, uh, there in high school, I kind of unlearned some of that, which was helpful in actually getting to enjoy enjoy the game. So you moved away from tinkering with games and just enjoying them as they're presented. Well, I mean, part of it was I started to understand games more uh, when I was, you know, when you're in middle school. I 
I played Third Reich, but I don't know what the hell game I actually played. I mean, we were just kind of ma- right. we were making calls on the fly and sort of, you know, we'd have battles and then go over to the squad leaderboard and play it out. Um, because, you know, we were playing these games over months. We had lots of free time. Right. And then in high school, I, I think it was really Battle Cry was one of those games that demand, I think Catan too, both games demanded that you really play by the rules. And then I had a, there was a, a good friend of mine, uh, Corey Porter, he had a weekly risk game. And so we would play one or two games of risk a week. And it was, it was lovely. It's a brilliant game, but only if you play by the rules and the rules, the thing that makes risk work is that cascading card turn in. And it's a kind of positional game where, who's going to be able to get the rolling cascade that's going to lead them to the win. Um, and that game really only worked if you cut away all the chaff and you just played it with its basic form. Uh, if you started table talking and negotiating, suddenly it became this eight-hour thing. Um, <laughs> and I think that that I, I stopped tinkering at that point <laughs> with some considerable exceptions that we can right. talk about. <laughs> if you want to go into the games I was tinkering in high school with. So, okay, so how do you decide to go from okay i'm tinkering with games be it ti3 be it uh risk or 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 any of the others that you you mentioned how do you go from tinkering to stopping tinkering to game design how does that transition go well i i mean so twilight wasn't twilight imperium was important because i was I was a huge uh, advocate of the game. I mean, I loved it, but I also, I hated what they did in the third edition. Um, not, I mean, I, I wanted to love it. I remember we went, uh, one of my friends had an office job and, or his dad has an office job and he printed off uh, Twilight Imperium rule books because we were so excited and bound it with those plastic pronged binders. So we all had, we were running around with copies of Twilight Imperium's rule book in our, in our backpacks in high school. So you're we so pumped for it. And then we played it, Compared to the second edition, which is such a, such a clean design, it just felt unfinished. And uh, I spent a lot, I mean, years really working on, I mean, I think the very first thing I uploaded to BGG is a variant for Twilight Imperium uh, that gave it the old progression track. I can't remember what it's called now. Um, and that, you know, that must have been a decade ago. But we really wanted, we wanted it to work. And then I had a moment when I, when I was in college in Bloomington, Indiana, where my, um, uh, some of the friends that I played with were Fantasy Flight playtesters, and they were tinkerers. They had balanced every game Fantasy Flight ever came out. They had their own house version they were playing. Uh, and it was at that, like, we were playing the best version of Twilight Imperium I could ever play. And then there was something that happened right when I moved to Austin. I went to a game group that was playing Twilight, and they were playing by some other weird house rule that I didn't like. And I realized that the impulse to make variants and to tinker, uh, it destroys the community around a game. And I found myself immediately converted to the side of like play as published. Um, and and, and uh, I think too, that was around the same time as I was playing a lot of Age of Steam. And even though Railways of the World was fun, and even though Steam was kind of a goofy little like variant, I hated the fact that they existed because they really destroyed the community. Because I mean, it's hard to see now, but there was a huge community around Age of Steam that I think existed because it was so monolithic. And the tinkering... I don't. I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm glossing over this a little bit, but I think that that there was a sense that the fracturing of all the different versions of that game, I think, may have hurt the Age of Steam community. Um, and so, I, yeah, I kind of. But moved then away again, from you're look you're looking at the tinkering. I mean, uh, there's a lot of designers that actually got their start by quote unquote tinkering by 
making different maps for Age of Steam. Oh, yeah. And, well, and, and when I say the community, that's exactly the thing I'm talking about. It's like this was like an engine and a design space that a lot of people were exploring with, I mean, just really fabulous, interesting maps. But when the other variants came out that like weren't necessarily cross compatible, I felt that like there was a lot of animosity with the whole, uh, you know, all, I don't, I won't, I won't, re, you know, re-adjudicate all that stuff. But just the various ownership of the different designs and its story development, I think, really polarized that community and hurt it. Um, which is too bad because it was a place where a lot of designers were like learning their craft, whether it's Viard or like you know. Um, JC. I mean, there's just tons of people were doing really interesting work with Age of Steam maps, and there was an audience for it that I felt like kind of was breaking down a little bit. Interesting. So that begs the question then, and I'm kind of going a little bit off tangent here, but with Age of Steam, since obviously you enjoy the game, and what, why haven't we seen a Cole Worley map? Because I can't... I, I don't know what I would do with an Age of Steam map. I... Though I, I'm trying to think about ones that I've played. I've really enjoyed, um, I think my favorite map is Sun with a possible... That's by JC, right? By JC. I think it's just, it's amazing. Um, the way it the way it unwrites Age of Steam is incredible. Um, I also really like, so I, I think I've, I feel very satisfied with Age of Steam and the maps that exist. There's no dissatisfaction that's going to like pull me into wanting to do something myself. Whereas with Twilight, I was like, this is, this could be better. And so I had like a desire to fix something, and I'm so I'm so happy when I get to play Age of Steam that I I, I get stars in my eyes and have no desire to tinker in that system. That's fair. So so then, if that's the case, let's talk about the games that you actually that are your design. So start start with the the award nominee here. We'll start with uh, the most recent, and we'll get to John Company in a little bit. But an infamous traffic. You got to admit, it's a bit of a unique, obscure topic. Yeah, How does is. that come to be? Uh, so I think my own design process is that I kind of have two conversations in my head. One of them is about theme and kind of themes that I feel are underexplored. Or specifically, there's a tendency in board game design to port, uh, I'll call it like video game historiography, which is a very graduate school way of saying what I'm going to explain right now. Um, Sid Meier's has like a theory of civilization and there's something that happens in board games where when you make a game about civilization, you're not really making a game about civilization. You're making a game about Sid Meier's theory of civilization, uh, through the ages is like the worst offender in that, in that, in that, in that regard, but like clash of cultures, both of which are games that have a lot of merit, but like their view of civilization, I was say careful. You're talking about my number one all time. I know. Game I know. And look, through the ages, through the ages is a brilliant game, a game that deserves a hundred plays. It's really lovely, but it also speaking as someone who like works professionally in, 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 in the study of history, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a historian, I'm a, I'm a literary historian, but so I'm kind of adjacent to the field, but it's, it's an old, it's a Whiggish, it's a Whiggish view of history. It's all progress. And it, it, I, I think, it, I think, um, uh, Vlada, uh, Chivalti, I, I, I'm going to screw up his name. I, I always apologize. Vlada Chivalti. Yeah. Chivalti. His designs are all kind of, are, are all interesting. They all have merit, but they also, he obviously loves Dungeon Keeper and now we have Dungeon Lords. And so there's this way that the way that video games sort through theme gets, it kind of infects board games. 
And that isn't that isn't a bad thing in and of itself. And I think his new game that's like the first person shooter or the game that his company put out, I don't know if he designed it, is I, I saw the the cover box, Adrenaline, I Adrenaline, think. Adrenaline, yeah. I think. Yeah, I saw that. I'm like, oh, this is this is the same thing where it's like, okay, they're porting. It, it really is a first person shooter in a Euro dudes on a map which game. Which is it an interesting really is. space, but I think it can foreclose other things. So I'm always, so like, okay, to get back to the main thing, what's animating the, the design, I have a kind of thematic... Uh, I, I'm just unsettled. Like I want people to approach themes because if you re, if you read a book on the Civil War, that book can be written dozens of ways. Just I mean, sure. social history and economic. I mean, there's just the Marxist. There's just so many different ways of writing a history of the Civil War. And then when you look at games, you're like, okay, well, you can make it political, like for the people, or you could make it like a military sandbox. And then those are that's it. And so, and I think that um, that that limitation speaks to a tendency to look to video games and then to adapt what works there. So I'm always kind of interested in looking at themes that are, I think are underserved and that might be interesting in games. And so all the games I've done about the British empire have kind of been because there are a lot of games about colonization that aren't actually about colonization. And so I kind of want to investigate that area, but that's one wheel that spins. The other wheel has to do with, just math and the kind of math questions I'm interested in. And, you know, that, that, that has to do with relationships and incentives and the kinds of formal questions, uh, that, that intrigue me. So, uh, in, in that sense, uh, zero sum economies and infamous traffic and risk, how, how risk gets to, I mean, that entire game is basically about different systems for working through risk. Um, and, and the, so I was thinking about that question and then I was th- also thinking about how weird it was that there was never, there's never been a game the, on the opium wars. And I thought, oh, maybe these two topics are talking to each other. I think it's a fantastic thing because as I said, uh, when we were talking about it in the golden elephant award, uh, episode, not, not a lot of, not a lot of games out there on that topic. Well, and it was one that, <laughs> it was one that very nearly didn't exist. I mean, I'd designed it originally for Phil, but it just didn't work. I, you know, some, one of the things I think is important about design and that should be emphasized more, and this is true of a lot of different forms of artistic production. Uh, I throw away like four or five designs for everyone that gets as far as John company got. And so with infamous traffic, I had something, but it, it just didn't work. And it was, it was just too weird. And then the way that game came to be is I, w- I wrote this article on games in the Civil War and history for, for Tom when he was editing uh, the magazine Ya, and he really liked it. And then kind of t- as we were working through the editing process, he was like, oh, well, I'm going to start this company next year. Do you want to g- give me something? And so I sent him an email with like, these are the three or four things I'm working on. Uh, and there's also this like weird little opium wars thing. Um, and he was like, oh, well, why don't you do the opium wars game? And I thought, all right, I'll try it out. And what saved that game was his production constraint. He said, look, you can have a board about this big. You can have 178 counters. We could do dice and cubes maybe, but you get a, you get Interesting. like a sheet. So the, so the design was actually, actually came to be based on those constraints. Oh yeah, the very first thing I did was grid out a piece of paper with that many counters. And I just thought, all right, how many is going to be spent? Like I started with the conspiracy pool. Like, how big did I need it to be for the variants that I wanted it to be in the game? And then I built all the, the systems around how big the conspiracy pool was. And then I thought, all right, well, that's going to leave me, you know, about 18 counters per player. 
So, okay, and I, I want, like, if I divide the production chain, I mean, op- the opium traffic was a little more complicated than that, as you might guess, but I thought, all right, I'm going to divide the production chain. If I'm going to have them do these certain things, I can really only have three different kinds of counters. So the whole game, like, started with that sheet, and then it fixed all these problems I was having because I was designing kind of a pack-style game with a big 128-card deck, or 120-card right. deck, and so forcing myself to say, like, all right, just get rid of everything that's not needed and really strip it down. It, it was tremendously productive. And that was a game that came into being very quickly. There was a long, all my games have very long gestations. But then once they click, it happens very fast. And I was in the hospital uh, for the birth of my second son. And it was, a, it was very long. It was very, like the, the first son was born at home. And it, um, it, it was a long labor for my wife, but relatively fast and kind of simple because it, we were just at home with a midwife. Okay. And the second one was complicated at a hospital, but it was very boring. We were just sitting there waiting and we play card games and chatted and she slept a lot. And while she was sleeping, I just typed out the rules to infamous traffic. And that's basically where that game came from. Um, <laughs> so if it seems like a game that, right. was, that, that was painful and stressed, it was, it was produced in a, in a stressful situation. Fascinating. All right. So on the flip side then, so Pax Pamir, now it's interesting, you talk about with an infamous traffic that you had ideas designing it based or kind of following the Pax kind of series kind of inspiration mm-hmm. there. So backing up now, Pax Pamir, how did that come to be and how did you and Phil first get together and how did this work? Yeah, it's you know so when I moved to Austin, um I went to, there was a little game store down the street from my house called Great Hall Games, sadly closed, but what must have been the best game store I've ever been to in my life. Uh, it's really a tragedy that closed because most, I mean, uh, many game stores have similar selections and are similarly curated. And this was one of those game stores that you walk in and you think, ah, what are these games? Like, I feel like I know games pretty well, but it just, you know, I remember when I, the very first time I walked in, the first title, the one that was like on the shelf was like Confucius. Uh, which is a very, oh, very esoteric, uh, very, very esoteric. obscure. I mean, yeah, they, they were just a weird game group. And then I, so I walked, I walked in the back room where people were playing and they were playing uh, Lords of the Spanish Main. There you go. Which is Phil Eklund, Sierra Madre. It's an old Phil, yeah, old Phil, Phil Eklund game. And, and I played it and loved it. And then I, I walked out of that store with, um, I think it was Origins or High Frontier which had just come out. And then like the next week, everyone's playing High Frontier, picked up a copy of that. And I just slowly cleaned them out of all their Phil Eklund over the, the few, first few months, <laughs> um, living high on my, my graduate stipend, probably spending too much money on Phil Eklund games. But uh, so, you know, there was a big community in Austin playing his games and that made it easy to kind of get in there. And then I was teaching myself Photoshop and I was doing that by doing map redraws. And so I redrew... Uh, the map for Lords of the Sierra Madre, which is not, I didn't do a very good job. I, but I, I thought highly enough of it at the time to post it on BGG. And then Phil sent me a note and said, this looks great. Like maybe we'll do another edition someday or, you know, maybe like, we'll, we'll, we'll see if we can put you in. So I kind of found myself oh, nice. like in, you know, I think, yeah, I think you can probably buy that map on Zazzle or something. But I, I was like in that little community then because Phil had, Phil had, had reached out to me. Um, and then I did uh, a really big redraw of Lords of the Renaissance, which took a few months. And uh, boy, did I screw it up. I mean, I, I, it could have been really good. I just, there were, I remember that when I printed it, I was so thrilled. I mean, I'd worked on this thing for months. And when I printed it, 
it was just clearly too dark. But because I didn't know what I was doing, I had exported the files like as JPEGs as I was working. And so like I couldn't go back and fix it because I had essentially deleted it as I was building it. I really was quite Oh, quite that's stupid. horrible. But anyway, it's still, it was very pretty on the screen. It just didn't print well. Um, but Phil really liked that. And, you know, so all, you know, to, to cut that story so kind of short. So what you're telling me is Phil Eklund was a huge Cole Worley fanboy. Yeah, he liked my he liked my graphic design. Yeah, early on. Um, but, you know, he, so, uh, but I was, I was very much, um, I think there was a wave. And it, it, it's funny, the little circumstances. Like, uh, and to my mind, um, the, the Phil Eklund wave, the one that he's riding right now, it was the posting of the High Frontier map on BGG, and it just sat there on the front page for months because it was so incredible looking and eye-catching. It really is. Yeah, yes. and I, I think I just remember like for weeks being like, wow, that map. And it was just sitting there, and it was drawing people to his games. So, But, but I had kind of gotten there through happenstance like a couple weeks early. And, and then when Perfuriana came out, I mean, I got that game back because he, he didn't you know he had his little customer base but before he kind of hit it hit it big perfuriana i remember he sent it out before essen which is crazy now knowing how the production schedule goes that he was able to like send out copies of perfuriana before essen but when i got right. that in 2012 in the fall of 2012 which i think is about the same time gelato it was like that same year uh well I, that's when i yeah. got into the hobby yep um yep. i was playing perfuriana like weekly daily as much as i could possibly play that game i loved it and it made me, there was a funny little note at the end of Perfuriana. Phil's wearing a sombrero and it says, if you can think of other games in the Lord's universe, submit them. Here's my AOL email account. Like, send this <laughs> to my way. And I thought, well, you know, I have all these files from Renaissance. I really want, I should make PAX Renaissance. And so that, that uh, over Thanksgiving, I wasn't going anywhere that year. And so I stayed home and just, wrote this crazy PAX Renaissance game and sent it to Phil. And he was like, oh, this looks great. And he kind of put me in an, in an email with like Stefano and, um, and Matt, his son, and him. Which are the main play testers. Yeah, yeah, who, and then they, I kind of was like in their design process. Now, there is nothing, I think all that remains of my design of PAX Renaissance is like the epigraph. Like literally like there's a, there might, like I have a quote from Brodell about the wheels of commerce, which I think is still like on the head of the living rules, Google doc, but that's it. That's the only thing that survived because it was not, it was, it wasn't good, but and I kind of learned how Phil's development cycle works just by reading those emails and kind of, you know, having backs and forths with them. But they, right. I just didn't really know what I was doing. Um, but then later on when Greenland was play testing, I helped a lot with the Greenland play test. Uh, and that's where I really, I think Phil saw that our group was giving him a lot of feedback and was pretty, I mean, the thing about playtesting is uh, groups are going to burn out in five or six plays. It's just, it's the, the nature of the beast. Um, okay. So you have, you have lot, you have lots of turnover. And when, when you do get a group that is able to play through 30 plays, like you've got, wow. a, you've got something yeah. special. I think Phil. Oh, that's got to be invaluable to a designer. Absolutely invaluable. And, and it was just, it was a circumstance where just we, I had the right neighbors that were interested in the game and we, we liked Greenland. We were kind of playing it a lot um, and we got stuck into it. And during that time, um, I had a close friend of mine, uh, Chris Contreras died. And it was someone I had grown up with, someone I played and made games with. He was in all the, in fact, I think on BGG, there's a picture of me somewhere 
of me playing Twilight Imperium. And he's like the person sitting next to me. Uh, anyway, he passed away um, tragically. And I just thought like, all right, you know, um, I could be working on my field exam, but I think I kind of just want to like make a game instead. And so I spent that summer, I mean, not that summer, that winter, uh, the winter after he died, I just spent it working on Pamir. Like what was... The, was that kind of like a, a cathartic? Oh, yeah. I mean, I just, it was, it was just one of those moments where you're like, well, you know, I could, I could get my job. Um, but this suddenly seemed more important. Uh, and Pamir had been like a game that I was kind of into. I mean, I've been thinking about it for a long time, but kind of struggling with it. And so there were kind of two things that happened close to each other. One of them is I saw a talk on campus from a historian uh, just talking about the role of, of local politics in Afghani history. And it was fabulous. And I thought, oh, you know, I've always wanted to make a game about, about the great game and about Central Asia. But the problem is it's very easy to get into kind of James Bond secret agent territory. And I didn't have an angle. And he was like uh, just elevating the locals. I was like, oh, those are the players. And as soon as I had that and w w with my friend dying and, th and, and just be thinking a lot about what I wanted to do with the next few years of my life, um, those things happening at the same time pretty much led to the generation of Premier. Interesting. I mean, I uh, first off, I'm sorry to hear that about it's, your I mean, friend. Many years now, but, but but still, that's fascinating. Where you can find inspiration to design a board game—that's so obs you know just I've never heard of that. It was a funny thing. Because, I mean, I'm at a you know a lot of these academic events. You're wearing suits and ties, and everyone's drinking like a sherry. Sometimes they are more cartoonish oh, sure, than you sure, even sure, would sure. expect you walk in and you think oh my goodness like is this actually what i'm doing um and, and to think that I'm, I'm talking to this eminent historian and i'm just scribbling down a board game design uh that's fantastic yeah. man that's great so so ultimately with how did pax Pamir come to be though it sounds like kind of a mix between did you have Porfiriana on the brain and so you wanted to make this fit in that universe or because you're talking about the theme of the locals but then also talking about how you were just smitten for lack of a better word yeah. on, on Porfiriana so so how oh, it sounds like kind of a meshing of yeah the, it, it was and there was another conversation you know I mentioned that usually there was a thematic issue and then there's also a formal one. And the formal one was I was having a lot of, I was having many conversations about Race for the Galaxy and, and about PAX because as different as those games are, they're both engine builders. There's a kind of race element to them. And uh, the other game, I mean, 2012 was like a seminal year for me because it was PAX, it was Keyflower, it was Great Zimbabwe, Terra Mystica. I hope I'm not messing that up, but I do feel like all those games came out in the same year. I I'll buy that. I I'm gonna have to regardless, check. I'm gonna have all to check. Fantastic anyway. games. Yeah, all, no, no yes. there was like something in there was just something in the air. Uh, and it, it may be <laughs> right. that I'm combining two years, but uh, anyway, one of the the things that so I was I was playing a lot of Race for the Galaxy because I'm always I have a love hate relationship with that game. Again, it's totally brilliant. It's my own personal. Um, a lot of, a lot issues. of people do. Yeah. Well, and I was thinking about tableau builders and engine builders and how over the course of the game, they pull people away from each other. At the very beginning of race, you are really, it's really dependent on your ability to read when people are going to take certain actions. And as the game goes yeah, to on, to be able to piggyback on that stuff. Sure. Yeah. yeah. As the game goes on, you become pretty self-sufficient and that, that's the way a lot of engine builders work. It's about becoming self-sufficient. And then when you play great Zimbabwe, it's the opposite. 
the more the game goes yep. on, the more you all get bound up. And I thought, I wonder if there's a way to make a tableau builder that's also a portfolio game and is pulling people together in that same way. And and then because I thought... Because you like your sharp... Uh, uh, yeah, I've, I've read and heard your quote, you know, you like sharp elbows. Yeah, I do. I want to I wanna really... I mean, there's something intimate about playing games with, with other people. And I want to... I think that is... When I think about what the the game form can do, I think it the the difference between games and movies and games and books and games and art is that there is there is an intimacy that they offer, and it's a social intimacy. Um, and I, I you know I've never I mean I, I've played RPGs but not not that much and I've never LARPed or anything. But I think that the the game form it offers like a, a closeness, and so because that's the thing that I feel like the form does well, I want to ratchet it up. I want to be as close as possible. And the sharp elbows are just, they're, they're just a, a consequence of that intimacy. Um, and, and a happy so, consequence, yeah, a happy as consequence. it were. And so in Premiere, the fact that you are, the, the game is, is defined by your alignment with the other players and that how that alignment kind of shifts uh, throughout the game. Um, in, in that, and that, a lot changed in Premiere over its development, but in that element, um, it's almost exactly what I imagined it would be. Uh, so far with all of my designs, I've had like a single thing where I'm like, this is going to be a Tableau portfolio game. And then everything changes. But like the, the central investigation is usually pretty much exactly what I thought it was going to be when I started the game, even though, yes, yeah, so, so much will change. So on that note, then what would you say is your process for designing games? I mean, you, you've come up with the ideas from different inspirations, it sounds like. But once you get to a certain point. What's that process like? I think, so I, I could divide it into a few different stages. I think um, at the beginning, I'm, it's about trying to figure out exactly what the question I want the game to be about. Um, in Infamous Traffic, the question has to do with the auction for the, for the prizes and the risk involved. Uh, and then the second stage is just about articulating that question. And so all of the other systems are like, they all orbit that central question. And so I, I am not a systems first, or I'm not a mechanics first designer. My mechanics are totally at the service of the central questions of the design. They come later. And I don't spend a lot of time thinking about like, ooh, this is a clever thing. Like I just, that, that thought like it will never, 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 never enters my mind. Um, you're so, all about manipulating the mechanics to suit the questions that you're trying to yeah, ask. Yeah, I mean, I spend a lot of time like writing functions and like drawing little network maps and like thinking about points of pressure and leverage. Um, and like coming up with a language, I think that sometimes it's helpful. Uh, I like, kind of will like draw on my humanities background trying to come up with a language to describe my question because usually I don't really have like a way of even talking about it. And so there a big stage in my process, sometimes years is just like figuring out the words that I need to describe the thing that I'm doing. And that I think right there is a fantastic way to describe when we call a game opaque Yeah, and, and why it's so hard sometimes to explain, be it yours be it Phil Eklund's and just that you understand the mechanics. Okay. I need to, I can do this. I can do mm -hmm. this, 
but why and what are the repercussions of these decisions? And I think what you just said is a perfect way to you're, you're trying, you have to generate the language. Yeah, no. And that, I mean that, I think that opacity is something that I like in designs that I play because it means for me sometimes like one of my, my favorite like definition of a game is simply the decision space, which adjudicates a winner. I just love it. It's so clean, but th there's a, there's a corollary to that definition, which is that um, in order for a game to be interesting, it has to be on the edge of your cognition. Right. Like if I play tic-tac-toe with my son, it's like blowing his mind. But right, sure. once you've got mastery of it, like, you know how to, you know how to describe that game, uh, even if you don't have the words for it. But the best games are the ones that are like just just outside of your reach. And so when I'm playing a game that's, that's opaque, I love having to come up with a language to describe the problems I'm having. Uh, and, and there are games. I mean, I still when I play 1830, I struggle with that game because there are things about the way money moves in the game and the way the economy works that I just, you know, I don't understand why things happen the way they do. I mean, I understand the rules. I've played it dozens and dozens of times, but it's, it's still like a vexing and interesting d design in the way it's dealing with, um, with incentives and all, I mean, all kinds of things, but you know, so I spend a lot of time coming with that language. And in fact, oftentimes I don't even fully develop it, but it will get to a point where I'll feel like I'll have some kind of, I'll, I'll know enough that I can start kind of domesticating those ideas and pulling them into an easier range. So the design process is about like figuring out what body is like floating out and like the far reaches, lassoing it and then slowly pulling it into intelligibility. Uh, and at that point, I will start actually building what looks like a game. And once that game, uh, once I've convinced that it's interesting and compelling, I will be like build it. So the, the prototype is like years into the process. The first prototype emerges and then I will, uh, you know, I'll show it to a few friends, my wife, and then we like work on it. We work on it. If we still think it has life in it, we start searching out playtesters and to begin the development process, um, which is a kind of a, it's a whole nother thing. Well, go with that. So what happens at that point? So so are you talking to where you're? going with uh finding your own play testers or are you talking about okay we have a publisher be it sierra madre be it hollenspiel whoever uh at that point you you hand it off to them or you're still extremely active when it comes to that step right so all the games i've done so far i have been if not in charge like more or less can i've controlled the, the development process pretty closely Pamir is a little bit of an exception um, for, for a couple of reasons, but usually I, I, I like to control the development process and it isn't, well, okay, I'll say a few things about, about the development process. Development is really hard. It's very different from all the other parts of design because it involves like the coordination of schedules and like there's a little bit of public relations and uh, it all the it, behind the scenes. Yeah. Stuff. And it also has to do with like generating metrics. So like, okay, now you've got your language now turn that language into an effective way of testing it. Uh, and then of course there's also like the copy editing and the component design and kind of like the user let, you know, all the UI stuff. So there's just a lot of things happening at the same time for development uh, with Premiere. I had an open call, tons of people signed up and I found the development of Premier completely exhausting. Uh, it Premier would not exist except for the fact that my brother happened to be living with me and we got to play the game daily. And it was like me, my brother, my wife were playing Premier all the time. And there were some other fr close friends in Austin who were helping. But the broader community 
Uh, they were wonderful, and the game wouldn't exist without them. But I didn't know how to use a big group of anonymous strangers on the internet yet. Uh, with Infamous Traffic, um, that development was entirely closed. I lived, uh, I was visiting my, my family in the Midwest, and I had a summer, and we, I just played with my brothers every day. We just kept playing it, kept playing it, kept playing it, kept working on it. Got to the point where, and there, there were some close friends who would cycle in and out of games. But I didn't, I felt like the thing that the playtesters gave me was guidance in writing rules and was a, uh, uh, just a good eye on components and usability. Uh, Pamir, before it had a, I mean, Pamir was a very hard game to imagine before it got fixed later in the process, and Phil's talked about that elsewhere. Um, but with Infamous Traffic, I just felt like I had answers to those questions. Like the rules were simple, uh, or, you know, they, they were, they were, it was just, just an easier game to write the rules through. They're more programmatic. And I had a good, I had access to playtesters. And so we just did it. And when I gave it to Tom and Mary, I felt very happy with it, but I also had no idea how it would do. Uh, you know, they're, they're starting a company. They didn't really have a brand yet. I mean, they hadn't published any games when I gave it to them. And so I thought, you know, I sent them this email that said, okay, here's the game. Um, you know, it'll arrive in the mail soon. I really like it, but it's really mean and strange. And if you want to change it, if you want to do anything, if you want to develop, just do it. Because I felt totally happy with the game as released. So, you know, whatever, they turn it into like a Euro and it like does really well, like in German, and it looks nothing like my game. I'm not going to lose any sleep over that because I know that my game exists in PDF form, like on my USB. And it, you know, I, I produced the thing I wanted to produce. And then if they're going to make a mass market version of it, it's fine. So I thought there's no way they're going to publish this thing as I gave it to them. Oops. Um, yeah. And then I got this email back saying like, uh, we have one question about prize distribution, uh, but everything else looks fine. <laughs> nice. And I, yeah, they, they might nice. have, I think that they, they helped me. There was like something about the industry leaders got victory points attached to them but that was it and they really they, they i think um yeah i don't know it i I'm, I'm to this day a little shocked uh that they didn't want to fiddle with it more and it wasn't that i thought it needed fiddling i well that's not true it's to, to make it it's a publisher's job to sell the thing and they you just took didn't think there was going to it was going to sell yeah i didn't think it had there's just i knew that myself and my brothers really liked it and that was about that, that was about it <laughs> All right, so why do you de design games then? I mean, are you designing for Cole? Are you designing for your friends? Are you designing it? Obviously, from the sound of it, you're not designing for what you think the market, quote unquote, uh, is interested in. So why why does Cole design games? I think, you know, it's the, it's the same reason why I work on articles or, you know, while I'm writing my dissertation. Uh, it... There are questions that I don't know the answer to, and there are certain forms that are better about answering those questions than others. And so there, there are games that I... So I think that there are two parts. There, one of them is it's an interesting form to work in, and I feel like I can explore topics that I couldn't imagine. The other one has to do with just the fact that I design games that I would like to play. I mean, John Company is a game that I've been dreaming about since for, uh, I don't know, 09 or 08. When I was in Bloomington, I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if we played a game where... Everybody was like operating in the same company, but it was sort of all about respectability politics. And, you know, and, and that, that's the seed of a lot of the, the games I've produced. Um, but that was a game that I just wanted to play. 
and that didn't exist. I mean, I remember finding about, I found out about, about Republic of Rome and I, oh, I just wanted to play it so bad. And I went the to old Richard Berg, right? I don't that know is? if Berg, it's an Avalon. I don't think it's Berg. It's a, but it's an old Avalon Hill game. Uh, right. Yeah. Right. Not, it's not Pax Romana, which may be right. Berg. I, I get my war games backwards sometimes, but Republic of Rome is an old, old Avalon Hill game got republished by Valley. Um, but before it got republished, so this is like in the early aughts, um, boy, did I want to play that game. And I, we would go to Gen Con every year, which is only, you know, it was just, just down the road basically. And there was an auction in Gen Con where they had old games. That's where like, I got my copy of Dune for like pennies, right? Before all the prices went up. And I wanted to play Republic of Rome so bad. And I got into a bidding war with somebody and he got it. And I thought, damn it, I really wanted to play Republic of Rome. And then we, so I, I went out to the hall and I was talking to all the people and buy, you know, looking at games, thinking about buying things. I found a copy of a game called Mechanicsburg. Um, I think that's what it's called. Uh, Mechanicsburg had a thing on the box where it said, you know, everyone is trying to keep the city alive, but only one player is going to win. And it kind of sounded like remotely like Republic of Rome. And I just bought it and it was really expensive. And it, 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 it's, a, it's an interesting game that is more ambitious than it is good. Um, and, and Cole has poor impulse control. I have really okay. poor All impulse right, control, it. especially for weird games. If it's, if it's some strange thing I've never heard of, I am much more likely to buy it uh, than something in the top 100. You and me both. And, but I remember taking it home and learning it and thinking, oh, this is definitely not the game that I wanted. Um, and trying to like tinker with it and, and fix it. Uh, and then I was like, ah, I'll just put it away. And I just, you know, it got, it got put on a shelf somewhere. But so in terms of the general question about who I designed for, like, I'm designing for myself mostly, um, but also for, so I'm designing for questions that I kind of want answered, but then also there, there's a selfish impulse where I kind of want to design the games that I want to play. One of the saddest things of the development process is by the end, you're a little sick of your game, like you've played it a hundred times. Oh, I, when you're talking about playing testing and play testing and play testing, I'm like, I couldn't do it. I, I, that's part of the reason I imagine why I have zero interest in designing a game because I just, I would burn out way too easy. Uh, and I, I have a lot of friends who dabble in design and the main thing that keeps them from finishing is just because it takes a long time and a lot right. of just, you just really. So, learn, okay. You know, so do you like playing your games at this point? Yes. I'm, yeah, I'm not. It's funny. Martin Wall said something about how the only said this, I think to a Tom Vassell interview, uh, like oh three or oh 04. yeah, way back in the yeah, day. way back in the day, yeah, he yeah. said that um, the only game of his that he enjoys playing is Age of Steam. Um, and I and I always thought that was a weird. I, I love playing my own games. <laughs> I do. I really. <laughs> um, I mean, Premiere is. You just need a break after the yeah, design. Yeah, I do. I need a break after the design. Where I think with Premiere, I finished it, and then it came out in time for BGG Con. I played it a ton of BGG Con. And then when I went home for Christmas, I, I played it a ton. For, I was just so happy to play it. And Infamous Traffic, there was a similar thing where I played it a ton over the summer, took a few month break, a few months of break, and then played it a lot over BGGCon. And it was like, oh, yeah, this is a good one. I kind of fell in love with it again. Um, with John Company, I'm finding myself getting close. Like the very last stage of development is kind of infuriating because everything works and you're really happy with everything. But, you know, you could make this thing cost like $1 more. And it's not that it will break the game or save the game. It just like changes the shape a little bit. So it's sort of like the last stages of audio balancing or something where you're like, 
eh, the game could go a little a little down. And it, it, it's not going to yep. make or break oh. it. And it's exhausting because you do want to make the best thing, but uh, it, it can be it can be kind of frustrating too. This is hitting way close to home, especially <laughs> with the new studio and everything that sure, we've had sure. going on. Trust me, I know exactly what you're talking about. So on that note, though, do you ever want to go back and revisit or tinker? Or in addition to that, where do you draw the line? And is it a line that says, okay, I'm done, that's it? Or is it, this is good enough and I really could keep messing with this forever, but I just got to get it out the door just just to be done with it. So so where do you draw that line? I, it's, it's tough. I um, So I have this... I have a deep ambivalence about living rules. I there is a degree to which I dislike living rules for how they fracture communities. So for yep. high, oh, I like the earlier version. No, yeah. I'll only play it with this. Right, only the first edition, only the second edition. I mean, fresh fish, whatever. I mean, there there are too many examples. Well, the one that the one that like hit me was High Frontier, which I am a huge fan of High Frontier, but I I have never looked at the Google Doc or the living rules. And one of the reasons why I've been such an ardent, I mean, I always play by the rules as published. I thought the game worked fine. You had to make a couple calls on the fly. Um, but one of the reasons why I am an, an, an unapologetic supporter of the third edition is I feel like it, you know, whatever the small production errors, I don't even, that is so minor compared to the achievement of taking all of the variants and all of the inconsistencies and saying, this is the third edition rule book. It is it brings everything into harmony. I mean, that's huge. That is the difference between squad leader and advanced squad leader. And that, I mean, there are, there's almost nothing like that in gaming. Uh, just, just because nobody will do it. It's much easier to have a new edition where you like make a couple little balances. You tweak the rules a little bit. Right. You put it in the variant. I mean, fancy flight's terrible about this. They, like put it in the variant section. Um, where, I mean, it was every, every one of the Twilight's expansions, I thought they're going to fix it. And instead they're like, here are 15 more optional rules. Sure. Why don't you guys finish? And now, how do you play it? Right, uh, yeah. depends where you go. Yeah, it depends right. on where you go. So it's I mean, so in terms of finishing the project, I I want to finish well. I have an impulse to think you know the game's going to get published. Uh, it's we're going to do a run of X mini, and the vast majority of those people are going to be playing by the printed rules, no matter what I happen to say, because this is like the loudest. This is the the loudest megaphone I'm going to get is like the one that sends the files to China. Uh, and, exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, with Kyber Knives, which I think fixed a lot of um, it wasn't that Premier had problems. It was just it wasn't in the right shape where after I played it a bunch after it was released, I thought there are some things that we cut out at the beginning for production constraints that probably should be back in there. Uh, and there were some areas of the game I wanted to explore. And I knew, though, that in publishing Kyber Knives that I was going to reach half of my which is the expansion for premiere for those and it came out the year following and it's just it's just a deck of cards and a few pieces it's 60 cards uh, but I knew that that expansion was going to reach half of the players of premiere and that of those half only a small percentage would actually play it because you really it's that first year where you're going to get where you're going to build your player base uh, and, you know, I'm sure those percentages are a little bit different uh, because of the nature of Sierra Madre games fan base uh, but I knew that like it was that there were going to be a lot of people playing Premiere. Uh, but at the same time, I had time and, and I still had had the files because I knew that if I didn't do it that year. And in fact, the hard drive with the Premiere files failed and I need to go get it, get it restored. So I can. That's terrifying. Uh, I have uh, the, the publication files are safe uh, because they're on Dropbox. But the original files that I used to build those Phew. are totally gone. Uh, I'll have to I'll have to send it in for a hard drive restoration. But I knew that because I had those. 
And because I remembered how they worked, you know, when you work on like a big video or audio project, you got to finish it when it's in your brain. Because as you get yes. far away from that, you're going to forget like how the files were linked. And so I knew that was the moment we finished it. And if, if there's ever another edition of Premiere, and I hope there will be someday, it'll have Kyber Knives in it and it will have the alternate victory condition as the real victory condition. And there will be no Kyber Knives. It will just be Pax Premier and it will have all this the This is just the game. Right. Okay. So, so how do you reach that point, though, for you? Like, wh- is it a definitive, okay, that's it, I'm done. I know this is the game I mm-hmm. meant to make. Or is it that perpetual, well, you know, because let's face it, you're not doing this for a living. You're mm-hmm. doing this for to answer those questions, as you said earlier. So because you are not on any kind of production time frame, like, oh, I have to be able to make my mortgage payment right mm-hmm. now. I have to push this out the door. So because you don't have that, is it one of those things to where you have to draw a line and say, okay, look, I am done. Really? Yeah. So I I mean, I, I do work with, with, with the feeling of having to get it out of the shop. So when I start a project, any, any project that I've taken to development, I know when I want to submit it and be done. Like I have that in my mind. Like, like, like to the day. Like when I started oh. the, the development. So John Company's development started about this time last year where I was in the middle of infinite traffic and I kind of got, got it going. But I knew at that moment that at May 15th, I was going to submit the files to Phil. Assuming he bought it. But I, I Okay, mean, so, so you do have these self- self-made yeah and artificial i mean i'm not trying to to you know undersell these deadlines that you're saying you put but there's there there you have made these there's no outside yeah, force well, on it, this. It, it, well there's an outside force in that you know i know that in order to make the essen fair phil has got to get gotcha. the files by may and then we'll do like final reads on it and then it's produced in june july and then it gets on the boat sure and with 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 tom and mary i knew that they needed it at the end of the summer and so what happens so when i build i mean it's it's the same way i approach uh doing any kind of writing or research where you you start like the first thing i do when i sit down and, and this is again long gestation periods john company a decade of like thinking about that game and then when i get to the point where it's ready for development i say okay it's ready for development Development will take one year and I go to the end and I just work backwards and say, all right, this needs to be done by this day. And I have a big schedule and I just, I, I've, I've been crossing items off the same schedule that I drew up like a year ago. And it was funny. Uh, you know, I, I sent out an email to my playtesters because like, I just posted the typeset rules and I said, guys, we're a day ahead of schedule. The typeset rules are up and wow. I don't know if they know, but like that's a schedule I wrote. <laughs> Last summer, just sort of keeping, you know, the, the way the way things need to go. So but your question about leaving a project and letting go is tricky. What what happens for me is um, I will still be interested in certain questions, but I will realize that they are not questions for the design on the table for this yeah. game. And, yeah, and, and, and there was a moment in a with infamous traffic where I was like, oh, I want to, like, put this thing in there. And I thought, no, actually, that's a John Company question. And with John Company, uh, there's a big there's a big question about like the country trade and all the stuff about like, the Omari Empire. And I was like, oh, these are really interesting elements. Uh, but that's not this game. That's some other game. And I'll think about it later. 
Um, it, like, it, you know, John Kemby's very high level. Every turn is 15 years. It's kind of a multi-generational because it really, I mean, you work through 150 years in an evening, so it's, it's gotta be high level. There's another game to make about the East India company. That's more like that BBC series taboo It's very conspiratorial and dark alleys and is, is a little more interested in the day-to-day operations, which would be lovely okay. an interesting game, but wasn't this one. So every once in a while there would be, uh, I'd have a playtester say like, what if you could, do this or have different kinds of goods. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Every turn is a year, you know, stay on target, stay, yeah, stay, stay on, on target. target. So a stay lot of that target. is like filtering it, putting it in the notebook, putting it in other documents and realizing that like, there'll be another game where I can hit those issues. Because again, for every game that I feel like I can put to development, there are a lot that just are in the box. Um, and it's, I think being able, it's been very helpful to feel like I'm not a, like, I, like I never feel like this is my like one shot to like nail it. It's like there are certain questions that John Company like can't that talk about because the design grew in a certain way that foreclosed certain investigations, and that's fine. Okay, uh, and, and it right. helps it helps establish a kind of finality because I you know you always want to put more in it, but uh, you know so, sometimes you don't have time, and also sometimes like the design isn't as capacious as you want. So you're just focused on okay. Here are the questions that I need to ask in this game. These are and does does this game answer those questions? Yes, it's done. Yeah, no, th- th- that's it. And there are, you know, with John Company. So I'll tell you something that so some people know about this. I don't think I've announced it anywhere. Um, John Company has a weird shadow game. So I'm gonna I'm gonna like I'll break some news for you. Uh, John Company has a weird shadow game called um, Nizam, and it is it was conceived in parallel to John Company. And it was, it's a game where, so John Company has these region cards that move around and kind of like power the events and you're fulfilling orders on them. In this version of, of, of the game, this totally separate game called Nizam, um, there are no regions. The players are the regions. And the, the, the dream of, of this game, and, and so it, the players get to play like basically uh, Indian princely states. And so the, the dream was that John Company okay. would be this like one to 12 player. You can mix any number of British families and Indian families. And okay. you're like playing two sides of it. Uh, and that, that game got fairly far in development, but it started getting out of the scope of John Company. There are ways I could kind of plug it in and John Company got more interesting. And so I thought like, okay, maybe someday I'll like make this weird like full box standalone expansion that can be combined and like live up to these crazy dreams about being the game about India in the 18th century. Uh, but this is outside of the game and I need okay. to decouple them to, because those cash economies were like tied, like in the element of the design, like they were really growing close. Uh, but I thought, you know, maybe this will be like next year, the year after all, like investigate this project more. Um, and, nice. the, and, and so when I finish the project, I don't usually feel a lot of regret, mostly because I've pruned all those branches much earlier on. Okay. All right. So yeah, that kind of answers that question. And I like how you were so focused on, okay, here's the question. Does it answer it? Yep. All right. On to the next thing, that type thing. But that said, do you ever feel motivated to go back and and tinker. Now, I understand what you're saying about like talking about kind of this this broad scope massive John Company game. That's not tinkering. That's a that's a major re, you know right. addition to 
what about tinkering? Or are you like, you know what? I'm real happy with where this is. Let's just move on to the next game. Yeah, well, it's not... I don't even think it has to do with my happiness so much as it's just like it. it is the game that was produced or something. I'm trying to think about uh, an example. Um, oh, okay, I've got one. Pamir, uh, the suits are imbalanced on purpose. There are fewer political okay. cards than there are economic cards or spies or whatever. Uh, that was a decision I was never super happy with. It had to do with the the fact that we could only have 120 cards in the box. There were production constraints that forced it. Um, I, I just, I wasn't totally content with it. And it was a pretty minor thing. I mean, it's basically, should I add three or four more purple cards? Right. Uh, when it came time for Kyber Knives, I realized that I could readjust the deck distribution by adding more cards of a certain suit. And I did that to a degree. Like I did tinker it a little bit farther to the purple, uh, to the political suit. But I decided to keep the original irregularity of the game because that was the game. And it was just like the thing that was produced, it had agency in the world. And I didn't want to say, no, I'd really like a scene where Hansel like walks around Jabba the Hutt and like steps on his tail. Like I just didn't want to do that. I thought, no, this is a game that has kind of weird irregular suits and I should just let it be its own thing. Uh, so I really try to resist that. Another, you know, with Infamous Traffic, um, the, I have, I, I remember I had a fleeting thought of being like, ah, should I balance, should I take out those negative prizes and just make them zeros? And I thought, no. uh, yeah, after some thought, I was like, no, that's, you know, I, I could tink, you know, it's that same thing, you could tink it forever. And I tend to default on, to, to treat the thing that was published, like seriously, as a thing that now exists. Respect the Yeah, the, you want to respect product. the thing that was Because, you know, if Infamous Traffic was the result of my thinking, like, circa 2016, and it's always going to be that, and I don't want to... I don't want to put myself in a role where I'm curating my own works because that, it's disingenuous because my th- own thinking about that work is going to change in the next year, in the next you know few years. And I, I, so the, the idea of constantly like refiguring it. Now, all that being said, uh, if in a decade a publisher says, oh, infamous traffic, we're going to like retheme it. It's going to be about lemmings. It's going to be great. Sh- that's fine. Like, I, I you know, I, I feel, you know, I... There's a way because that an infamous traffic exists. It already, yeah, it already That's exists, fine. and I don't, I don't have to, I don't have to like keep watching over it, right? It, it has its own, it has its own body. Um, I, uh, oh yeah, I'll, I'll, just, I'll, I'll leave that at that. <laughs> all right, all right. So there's a quote that you wrote on your website that I, I found just thought-provoking, I think is a good way to put it. So it says, quote, I consider games a serious art form, capable of expression and argumentation and worthy of critical engagement. My own designs are positioned at the intersection of my research and my pedagogy. I'm especially interested in designing games that offer new perspective and fresh subjects. And I I, I originally was going to ask you to expand on that, but I, I, I feel like you, you've actually covered all that really well. Yeah, I mean, I I think that the the conversation about the artiness of games or non-artiness of games, I just feel like it's been settled. Like it's, you know, my, my, the, the definition of art that I give to my students, uh, and it's I think it's the only it's one of my favorite definitions. I don't I don't know if I stole it or if I made it up. I I, I honestly do not go know. with it. Own it. Okay, it's yours. It. This is my definition of art. Um, art is the word that you use to protect, protect the things that you value. And that's it. 
That's all it is. So, you know, the, 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 the parent says, um, you know, Radiohead is a stupid band. Uh, the Beatles are true art. And their parents said the same thing about Sinatra and their parents said the same thing about Stravinsky and their et cetera. Because et cetera. it all is our art is is very personal and very subjective. And as long as it makes you feel something, then mission accomplished. Right. right? And, and also because art, it, it's a you know, this is Bordeaux. Right. But it's it, it's uh, it's a kind of capital. It's something that's valuable. Your knowledge you know, if I if if I think the Beatles are a bad band, I don't. But let's say I think the Beatles are a bad band. You love the Beatles. Well, you've got all this body of knowledge about the Beatles, and I've just made that knowledge less valuable. Because sure, I don't care. You, you've you've exactly. Right? I mean, th- this is like when when you talk to people about games, and you they're like, "Oh yeah, the Splatter. I don't care about Splatter." And you're like, "What? These are seminal seminal designs." And that that decision about value has to do with our own positioning. So. When, when I'm talking about art, I, I you know, I, I, I'm speaking about it just sort of as human expression and the kinds of human expressions that we value. And so, and I want, because, because I have found myself uh, making games and I'm interested in that form, um, I want other people to treat it with value. But at the same time, like I know that um, these are things that we have to negotiate and go back and forth on. Um, the, the main thing that I push against, though, is the idea of something as being pure entertainment as being not as important. Um, when the Gamergate thing broke, which is something that animated my own brief experiment in, uh, in podcasting, which might come back. Uh, I had a podcast with a friend named Lily Zhu called Culture Bites Back, where we just sort of we experimented the form. We were thinking a lot about uh, just a lot about games as something that was worth attention because when you call it just entertainment, you remove the gravity of the expression. Totally agree. I actually was interviewed by Safari LTD, you know, the little uh, dolls, the little, little miniatures, the little rubber uh, animals. Mm -hmm. And the lady interviewing me had, had no frame of reference about this hobby Mm -hmm. whatsoever. And I, I had mentioned to her how it's a social gathering. It's what we, how we come together as friends and it it builds community and it does all these things. And to just say, Oh, it's just a way to pass the time. And I'm like, that's, that's kind of selling it a little short. And so she came around to understanding it. So is that, no, kind of, yeah, that's exactly it. Like it's about, it has to, like, I think that, um, questions of, of legitimacy, there's a degree to which they're always very boring. Um, they're important, but they're boring. They're only boring because I think that we should be inclined to grant uh, to grant legitimacy to things that we care about. So for that reason, because I think it's kind of a settled argument, um, but it becomes less settled when you talk to people who, you know, don't value those things. Um, totally. And, and I, you know, the, the other thing is I think that there's a tendency to, uh, in criticism, to take seriously certain kinds of expression. And, you know, so like you, you watch a David Lynch movie and you're like, I don't really know what I watched. But he's smart, and people like him, and maybe there's more going on. And it, 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 there's something humbling right. there, right? Or the other reviewer's like, well, I don't, that was boring or something. Uh, but right. I think- Right, well, what did I, that was a waste of my time. That's so like, so there's this other resonance of art that, that, I, that I, I appreciate a lot, which is, you know, if, if something, if this expression, uh, you know, if it 
by virtue of the creator calling their work art, they're asking the the viewer, the player, the listener to take their expression seriously, even if they find it disarming, disharmonious, like they're going to dwell on it or, or, or they should. And I, I think one of the reasons why I, I love music and I love weird films so much is because I love going into something that I don't understand and, and even dislike and then have to kind of like sit on it and like work through yeah, it. Yeah, and chew it over and be like, why? Right, right. Yeah, so I, and I, um, I wish there were more games like that. I mean, a designer I really admire uh, who somehow is like still not broken through the way that he should have. I mean, I guess he has, but yeah, Nate Hayden. Um, oh yeah, who's local? Who's yeah? To, who's a to local? Us who, here, he's yeah. down in the springs. And, yes, I mean Cave Evil. And is, for those for those listening, Cave Evil, um, uh, San Quentin Kings. You have uh, Pablo uh, uh, Mushroom Eaters. You have After Pablo. All, all of these Grail games of mine. Oh, and yes. they, you know, his games. When you look at when you when you open up Cave Evil, it is it is just it is the work of. I mean, it reminds me of the, the the computer game Dwarf Fortress or something, where the, the, it's just two brothers in you know in in a little apartment somewhere in the woods in Washington, like producing the thing that they wanted to produce and taking their their work very seriously. And so the fact that in in Cave Evil the counters are very hard to read because it's it's dark red on a matte black, but that's that's kind of the ethos that what the game. What what the game's going for? I mean, it's like an early Richard Breeze title where like he had a vision, and then he's producing this vision with this just wonderful. I mean, I, I'm I'm uh, I think maybe overly charmed by that by that theory of art, the that the craftsmanship. I mean, it's one of the reasons why Phil has asked me occasionally, like, oh, do you want me to like get a graphic designer? And I thought, you know, it would save me a lot of time, and I don't think I'm good enough to like do John Company, but I think I just want to get better at InDesign. And, and I really care about like bringing it all to like kind of doing everything. Um, and I don't mean it as, although I will say some people and discussing rule books, just saying there's a, there, there's room for growth there. Yes, no, that's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm learning a lot about, uh, rules writing the more I do it because I find it very, very hard. Uh, rules writing is not, I, the way I, I've heard that's the, the hardest thing to do in all of this hobby and I is you know, writing a good rule. Book. Yeah, it, it's tough. And it, um, the, the, you know, like a, like a lot of other kinds of writing, the more you work on it, the more you realize how difficult like, it doesn't get easier. It's it much harder. Sure. Um, and, and there are ways that the premier rule book was much easier to write. Uh, but I do think so. And, and I don't mean to sound like I want like control over every facet. I'd be happy to work on a project. Oh no, I, it doesn't yeah, sound yeah, exactly yeah, like that other, at all. Cole. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I have a, I have a game I'm, I've worked on with my brother uh, called Headset Heroes, which is kind of like about competitive video gaming. And I don't know, maybe it'll see the light of day someday. But we have a friend who's a cartoonist who did gorgeous art for it. And it's been so fun to be kind of like part of a creative team. So I do love that kind of work. But That's John cool. Company was a personal project. And I kind of wanted to see it through all the paces. And I will say, speaking of rulebook writing... Uh, I am prouder of that rule book than just about any other thing that I've done. Um, it's not, it's not I, quite I, done I've yet. I've played a prototype of it. Now, this is before it had a board. Yeah. So I'm looking forward. I, I know a lot of people are really anticipating. So for those that that are listening and that have not, are not super familiar, give me high-level John Company. Uh, okay, so John Company is a game about 
becoming a respectable family in England. Uh, so, you know, think Jane Austen, you're just trying to make a buck and retire at a fancy house. And you do that by collectively steering this big business. And imagine, you know, in Food Chain Magnate, uh, which is a game that I'm not supposed to compare John Company to, but it was on my mind when I was designing it. <laughs> you, you've got a big, you've got a big company with all these little jobs, but instead of all those jobs being controlled by one player, uh, players take turns and they kind of climb the ladder through the company. And uh, it's it's just it's a game about the the shared project of building something, while at the same time the more respectable families, the ones that have already cashed out are trying to tear it all down and just burn the bridge as they cross it. Um, so it's not, it's not a cooperative game. It's quite competitive. And there's a lot of like kind of weird zany negotiation in it. But essentially, uh, it's a game about running a business together and then running that business into the ground together. Fantastic. I'm, really, I'm legitimately looking forward to that. And that is supposed to be coming out at Essen this year. That's right. If all plays out we are, right. We are on right? schedule. <laughs> Good. Per your schedule. Got it. All right. So let's change it up a little bit. So now I, as you know, we have our, our Patreon and, and we have our patrons and I asked them in our Slack chat uh, the last couple of days, hey, y'all got any questions for Cole? I'm going to be, you know, sitting down and talking with him for a bit. And they came up with a pretty good range of questions here. All right. So first off, your three published or soon-to-be-published games, Sierra, they all went to Sierra Madre or Hollenspiele. Is that a conscious decision on your part? Is that a you're going to stay with those two companies? Or are you thinking about branching out? Or is that a bridge to be crossed down the road? So I have thought about it. I All the designs that I've done were designed for specific companies. Um, when I pitched, like I really wanted... Because... Uh, you know, for the reason I described earlier, I really wanted Phil to publish Premiere. Uh, so when I designed the cards, I, I looked at all the Perfuriana cards and was like, what would Phil like? And so everything about the game was like built for Phil. Uh, John Company was more a game that could have gone a couple different places, but um, Infamous Traffic was designed for Hollenspiel. That said, I have games for mass. Like, I actually find it really interesting, the issue of designing for a broader audience and I have designs that I would love to see through to that point. So I have other projects, but I'm not going to pitch Phil like a midweight Euro. I'll, I'll go to Sure, yeah, yeah. It, keep it specific to yeah. what, what's have, appropriate for the I have so many projects publisher. I want to do for Phil. Like I will always, I think, have, especially if John Covey does okay, I think I will always have like a Phil project in the works in some degree. Uh, but this is something that I, um, I want to explore more. I mean, it's... It isn't my day job. I don't. I'm at the very end of a of a long of a very long graduate school experience. It's been lovely, but I'm looking forward to doing the next thing, and um, I have no idea what it's going to be. But I know that no matter what I'm doing, uh, I'm going to want to be designing games. That uh, I'm excited to hear that, and I'm sure everybody listening will as well. So the unique themes is that a conscious decision. Um, or is it more or less just with your uh, study in your graduate program and kind of what it is that you're passionate about? Do you do you specifically latch onto it, or is it just you fall into them? I don't. I don't know. I mean, it's it is weird that the ones that have published. Maybe it's a marketing decision at some deep level. I'm like, what what angle can I take and I <laughs> find these right. topics? <laughs> um, I have. Yeah, it's funny. Even. Um, 
I have a very weird Euro game about running a school. It's so strange. Uh, and it had, and it was, it was, it's extra strange because there aren't very many games about running schools, which seems like an obvious theme. All these teachers playing games, right? Here's a game where like competing principal. So yeah, I'm saying this on the air and I, I hope that publishers hear it and they think, oh yes, games about schools. We should do that because I would love to play more of them. I'm not, I, I, I share my ideas freely with anybody. Take it, take it, take it. But I have a game about running a school that um, it's a kind of, so I guess all of my themes are just offbeat, but I think it's because my interests are a little offbeat. Um, if, if, if the subject of the game doesn't animate me, then it, it, it just won't get done. So, like, so it's I, all about passion. Yeah, so whatever, it's all about whatever. finding, I want to find something. You know, when I was an undergrad, when I was in high school even, I would always pick topics to write about that I had no idea what it was. Like none. I was like, I'm going to write about gender and Hamlet. I have never read a book about gender and Hamlet. Uh, and of course, there are tons written and it was always fun to, to learn about the stuff. So I tend to pick topics that I don't know very much about. So like with Pamir, like I didn't really know much about the great game. I had read a little bit. But then going to the library, getting the books, kind of like sorting through all of that. Um, with, with the school game, I read a lot about, and it's kind of a, I mean, it's a family game, but I read a lot of games. I read a lot of books about how schools work. Um, so I, as long as I can find a theme that I don't know about, it is likely to get my attention. I think that's maybe the, okay. the governing. I dig it. I dig it a lot, actually. <laughs> I, I, always hungry, yeah. thirst for knowledge type stuff. <laughs> I dig it. So do you find, now, seeing as, as you teach, uh, do you find that game design influences how you teach or vice versa? Or, um, or none of the above? Well, um, okay. It's funny. The class I'm teaching now has featured no games. It's very serious. <laughs> serious class is serious. Yes, yeah, it's, right. it's, 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 yeah, it's a serious class. We, re, we read hard books in serious class. Uh, but I, I use games when I teach. Um, <laughs> I've taught... I used to teach undergraduates research by using Sam Barlow's Her Story, which is an excellent um, interactive fiction kind of puzzly computer game. I taught a game on uh, debt that used, uh, I, I played a big, I, uh, do you know uh, Stephen Dora's Intrigue? Yes. Okay. It's, it's an amazing game. It's one of those, it's one of those games that came out in like the early 2000s or no, the 90s that is just criminally underappreciated because it's brilliant. But I, I was teaching a game on debt and what I did is, as an exercise, each player became a piece in the game of intrigue. And we like set up different chairs because the whole idea is you're trying to send your family members to go get jobs at these different fancy houses. And so the players divide into teams and they would go and they'd say, all right, do I, you know, if you have multiple applicants, you can only have one doctor. So which one do you pick? And so it's all about favors in a kind of bonanza-ish sense. But essentially, right. we, we played a live-action version of Intrigue, and it, it worked great as an exercise. So I, I do use games a lot in my teaching, especially when I teach high schoolers, uh, just because you have a little bit more time, the periods are shorter. Uh, with college students, it's a little tricky. Uh, but I would say that uh, I'm always thinking about when I'm designing lessons, if, if, if the best way I can get it across is through a game, then like I'm going to use a game. But I, I, don't, right. I, don't, I, don't, I don't push for it. Are there any designers that you look for, either uh, look up to or see as inspiration, uh, or or you know as I use them for ideas that type thing? Uh, I love Tom Russell's designs. I love them. I Northern Pacific when it came out was like a, it was just a revelation for me. I had never. It's again going back to that opaque design just it's just it's so simple it's so simple it's I, 
It's so just cru- simple. crushing uh, how simple it is. And then when I played um, Irish Gage, I just laughed the entire game. I was so charmed by Irish Gage. Something about that- shaking that little cup. It was just... It was so fun. And the the different way it was like working with its probabilities and the incentive management, I was I was smitten with, with that design. Uh and I just Irish I, Gage is my all time favorite winsome. Oh really? Yeah. Worth. So it's I it's it's amazing. And actually, so I would say um the, the public so I love I love love Tom's work and I will always buy the winsome set. I am waiting for that email. I'm you just and like me hitting both. refresh because I know it's coming any day. And my, you know, those are games that get played a lot and I think about a lot and they, they kind of anchor my formal concerns on the less than formal side of things. Uh, I will certainly always play Phil's games uh, just because he he has a he has a wide inquiring mind. We have. And here's the thing. I know Phil people have problems with Phil, Phil's politics. Uh, little do they know that, like, I am in constant email arguments with him. Like I love Phil, but we argue about politics constantly, constantly, uh, and I I wouldn't trade it for anything because some of our threads are now years old where we're really just going back and forth. But I'm really interested in the kinds of things that catch Phil's eye. Uh, I want to learn about them. Also, I didn't study science, so I really appreciate you know he uh, oh, what book I see. Now I'm going to forget the the title of the book, but I. Because of Genesis, I found myself reading a bunch of books about the the origins of life that were way beyond me. Uh, but you know, I'm now calling out my brother and asking him to explain like these different theories and everything. So Phil's games always, um, and then shortly, just a couple a couple other designers that I'm really I'm just kind of intrigued by their work. Um, Joel Toppin, uh, even though I don't normally play solo games, exploring Navajo Wars was really wonderful. Um, and Comancheria. And Comancheria. Yep. Um, and then I, uh, I'm always interested again, like in Nate Hayden's stuff. Um, there are, yeah, I don't know the, it's, it's the, the small press stuff I'm attracted to. Um, you know, I usually, you know, I'm, I'm sure you have relationships like this where like, oh, you're into games. Like, do you want a game for your birthday? People are always, uh, you know, like, ah, you, <laughs> yeah, have good you luck heard trying of, to find have, these. Have you heard right, of Catan? Yeah. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, but so I have a general rule where I tell people like, yeah, don't buy me games. Like I kind of like know the ones that I'm intrigued by. Right. But uh, there's an exception. My, my brother-in-law uh, has amazing taste and he will find me these weird indie car, indie RPGs that I've never heard about. And so uh, there's one, I can't remember the name of the designer, which is too bad, but there's a game called The Quiet Year, uh, which I just love. It's very weird. It's a, it's a game where you have to communicate through drawing on a map. Um, and the way the game is positioned, it's not really about winners or losers or anything, but it's just the game is an organ for dealing with disagreement and experimenting. And it's, I, I love it. I think it's amazing. And I, the, sadly, I think the designer has stopped designing but I'm really interested in her work and will happily seek out those titles. So the weird right. stuff, give me the weird stuff. So no, noted for Christmas, weird stuff. Yeah, Got it. Okay. All right. Um, dream collaboration. Do, do you have any interest in ever working with somebody on a like co-design? I really want it- to design a game with my brother. We've, we've always had, and this is kind of a campy answer, but it's, it's true because when, we have a relationship where I will, I, I am definitely in the designer role and he is definitely in the developer role. So I pitch and he cuts and I pitch and he cuts. And I would love to work on a project with him where we both get to oscillate 
our positions a little bit because I've been talking uh, with my brother Drew about games for I mean as long as we've been as long as long as we've been alive we've been talking about games and I would love to like work deeply with him on a project outside of that um, I'm sort of interested in working on a digital game I don't really know what it would be or what it would be like but there are tons of designers in that space that I'm just intrigued by their work and would love to, to work on something with them. So cool. Yeah. All right. Now the most important question I've asked you the entire day here. All right. <laughs> all right. And this fire is away. Fr- on a personal note. This is me asking you Cole this question. No one is listening. I, I've been waiting years for your graphic redesign of union versus central. When does the wait end dude? Come on. Oh my God. Uh, it's, it's, it's funny that you say that because I very nearly like dusted it off recently. Um, Please. okay. So I'll give you, I'll give you good news and bad news. The good news is I could do it very quickly because I, I just know a lot more about how those, when I was starting that project, when I was starting that project, every car, I was just, it was, I, I can't imagine even watching myself doing it. I was doing it in the worst, most wrongheaded way. It, that is a game where I could write my little, I could put them in a spreadsheet. I could do a data merge. We could have the decks um, with like so a few So real quick, weeks. for the people listening at home, it's it's the most just wrong game in the world. It is 18xx, the card game that can take upwards of, you know, 16 hours to play. It's a two-player only game. It's just absolutely it, insane. Well, and it is it is Roads and Boats, the card game. I mean, also that. So it's a, it has a, their train elements, but I, I find like it somehow takes the torturous decisions about logistics and Roads and Boats and has this the same gravity, but it's on a single line. I mean, it, it's, ama- it's amazing. Um and I, and I love it, and I, I still play it. Uh, and I, I did part of this. Re- I started the, this redraw, and then I realized how many cards there was, and then the semester got crazy, and I had to write all this stuff. And it's just sat there, and I really want to do it. And I feel like I can do it, and it's it's on the agenda. The problem is I have emailed the people who I would need to email, and they have not been that responsive to actually <laughs> like taking it. But I think the way for me to do it is to do the project, to pitch it to certain publishers I have in mind, and then to have them go to Winsome. Because I would love to see that game get like a little, a little dressed up republished because I do think it's brilliant. And I think that even though it is, it can, it can be 16 hours. The two hour game is lovely. Like all the smaller versions work. It scales great. The rules are simple. Oh, it needs wider distribution. Like so many other Winsome. I agree. And it would sell dozens of copies oh yeah it's i mean oh with the right face so i i would love to do that and i would love to just help um yeah so speaking of dream you, you collaborations you're like get i would love to do now. a train game for winsome with any of the people on their staff i would be so down i wish i had that that uh that tenacity to do something that simple but but the bad news about it is i have acquired or i acquired a few months ago a first edition copy of lords of the sierra madre now lords of the sierra madre is is a is a tricky game priorities cole I, well no th- this is important though because this the second edition is is fine but the first edition is there is an insanity to it it is this oregon trail every hex is 10 miles of mexico it's this completely insane thing and i really want to do a comprehensive redraw just just and i would highly highly encourage that after, after Union, Union versus, versus Central. Central. Yeah, I just feel like I, it's the kind of thing that I want people to play this weird, like, I mean, it's Phil's first game and it doesn't exist. I looked for that game for eight years before I found a copy of it. 
which is which is my record for, for Grail games. And when I say copy, I mean one of those '80s office envelopes stuffed with with paper, just printer paper, and then a little letter that Phil wrote like in 1989, saying like I hope you enjoy this copy. You know, so it's it's a very hard to find item that I I just want more people to be able to like see it and work through it because it's so charming and interesting. So uh, th that project is slightly higher priority, but maybe, maybe I'll revisit, I'll revisit universe central because that, that game does I, need, you need keep threatening. Audience. You, you, you keep threatening for years to do this. I've been waiting. I've been patient, Cole. Yeah. And We've it's, it is a game this. that I, I think would do, <laughs> would do quite well. Cool. All right. That's, that's all I got, man. Um, so this little 45 minute, uh, yeah, uh, became an hour and a half, and I'll be honest, we might actually just make this in the next episode. You, we were actually going to team this up with an infamous traffic, but I think I think this is interesting enough for folks at home that I'm not going to mess with it. I think Amanda is going to take care of it, and and here we are. So well, I had a, gr so I had a great time. A this was a real blast. Yeah, this was this was really cool. Really appreciate it, and uh, super excited about John Company, man. All right. Well, um, so yeah, thank keep you it very up. much for having me on. Keep, I, I love your podcast. I, I appreciate that. It's very kind of you to say. So uh, good luck also on uh, on the Golden Elephant Award that yeah, will be you. announced at the end of May during HeavyCon, so, which you need to come to once you're done with school. Yes. And uh, yeah, man, thanks a lot for doing this. And uh, yeah, we'll be in touch. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. Over. All right. Take care, Cole. Right, thanks. See you. That's pretty cool, huh? It really, really was. Thanks a bunch to Cole for taking the time. And I got to say, really looking forward to John Company. I am too. So Essen. Oh, hey, wait, we'll be there. <gasps> Can't wait. Pick yeah. up a copy there. Oh, yeah. So that's all we got for this week. We will catch you all next week, yeah? Yes, we will. Absolutely. With another show. And in the meantime, check out heavycardboard.com slash live for all of our live streams and stuff. Promise. Next week, we'll be back with a new show. And, you know, related to board games in some form or fashion. Promise. We promise. We really promise. Bye, guys. <laughs> Later. Later.